But this morning, in talking about what I want to call a theology of creativity, a theology of creativity. And if you'll turn to Genesis uh, chapter 1, we see a, a very common kind of famous passage that really sets this thing up. But there's a, a theology for everything, and I went to school and they taught me a theology for everything. And then I, I began to realize it seemed like there was never a theology for the things that I cared about or that I thought Scripture cared about. And so you'd get these doctrinal statements, but it wouldn't say anything about justice. Um, and justice is one of the ways in, in which we know God. It's not just an ethical imperative, okay? It's also a theological imperative or necessity, meaning if God's heart beats for justice, if it's a part of his character, if your dad fishes and you never go fishing with your dad, you have a deficient level of knowledge about your dad. Does that make sense? So in philosophy, we'd say there's an epistemological, there's a knowledge-based component to this idea of justice. It's not just ethics, it's also spiritual growth. Does that make sense? Um, it's one of the ways in which we come to know God. So there should be a theology of justice. I think there should be a theology of prayer. Prayer, if, if it's anything, is about how we talk to God and hear from God and come to know God in dialogue. But I've never really seen that, that prayer shows up in a deep, rich theology. We, we talk about it kind of in Christian living, um, you know, the different section of the bookstore, the more hallmarky and less academic sections of the Christian bookstore. To me, the Christian bookstore is all hallmarky. Um, one of the things I shouldn't have said. Um, uh, I got to figure out where my wife's sitting. Because I can usually feel when she cuts me off before I do that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't see her. Um, all right, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image and that means mankind created mankind in his own image and in the image of God he created him male and female he created them if we go on to Genesis 5 1 it says it again this is the record of the family of the line of Adam when God created humankind and he made them in the likeness of God there's something embedded in this right God created and they're in his likeness. So one of the necessary components of being made in the image of God has to, by virtue of this sentence structure, include what? Creative potential. I mean, I think there's a whole lot of things that, that exist uh, in the image or the likeness of God that, that, that men and women bear the rationality and, and the the empathy and the love and the relationality. There's a lot of things that I think we have when we, we try to say, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? But just grammatically, one of the things that has to exist if we're talking about being made in the image of God from that sentence is that we too have or bear some of this creative spirit that God manifests in creating us as part of his creation. So when I say I want to work out a theology of creativity, what I'm really saying here is I want us to figure out how to talk about creativity, imagination, innovation, 
art, um, beauty, some of these kind of potentials. I want to figure out how to talk about those with reference to our relationship with God such that our creativity, innovation, uh, our imaginations speak to how we can have intimacy with God or know God or understand God and not just simply act creatively in this world. That's what I mean by theology of creativity. It's a way of learning about studying or coming to know God, not just talking about creativity as something that's done for talented, gifted people. Does that make sense? So let's roll through this pretty fast um, because I want to spend more time at the end. Uh, So John 1.1. It's a famous passage, and we don't have time for me to really unpack it, but it's something that I think we... We miss what's going on here because it's so powerful that John starts his gospel here in such a, with such a high Christology. What that means is it's so top-down Christ-centered uh, and the supremacy of Christ that, that we, we rightly so begin there with understanding this, um, this paradox of this relationship between father and son and the creation coming through the son. And so we go and we run with that and we see it again in the book of Colossians and other places. But, but again, grammatically, when we look at this, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Now through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made and in him was life and that was the light uh, that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the, uh, but the darkness did not understand it. And there came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. And he came to be a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only to witness to the light. The true light was the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was, was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It's really interesting. We, if, you're, if you hang out around Christians long enough, they, they have their own way of talking. There's a really funny video that I think I one time uh, once shared. I actually got in trouble. Somebody didn't like the video. But it was a, it was a parody on the way Christians talk in cliches, right? Um, I thought it was funny. Uh, one of the things we say is, is we have this use of the word word in Christian circles. I'm going to go spend time with the word. Have you been in the word lately? You know, let's, let's get together and talk about the word. And, and it begins to be this broad kind of general uh, symbolic whatever, right? Because it shows up in very important ways in the gospel here. Now the word for word is actually the word logos, right? Uh, which means, in Greek, word, statement, or message. Okay? Those are the three. There's always a couple different meanings, but for logos, if you were to look at it, the three prevalent kind of translations would be word, statement, or message. So when we come to it, we're like, it's the word, it's the message. And that's that word, the word, Jesus was with God in the beginning and everything was made through him and we go on and we we really get excited about the word but there's something really fascinating that gets missed. There's a a Jew, uh, 
The Jewish use of the idea of logos is rich and it's deep and it goes all the way back to wisdom being at the crea- in the book of Proverbs, wisdom being at the creation of the world, um, the foundations being spoken in. There's this real rich, deep, strong Judaic tradition coming into this. But John is writing to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. Ephesus is a cosmopolitan town. It's a port town with this huge um, Greek-style amphitheater uh, and the goddess Artemis um, and a, a tourist industry. This is where a riot broke out where they wanted to take and grab Paul and kill him. And so they had to usher him out of the city. And it's this fascinating city. One of the biggest libraries in antiquity was in Ephesus. And you have this strong, academic, cosmopolitan, urban-ish history of a very Greek city. That's where John is writing or the community that he's kind of pastoring when he's writing the book uh, or the gospel of John. So what's interesting about that? What's interesting about that is that in, in Ephesus, you had a history of the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus. Heraclitus is famous for a lot of different things, but his particular uh, contribution to cosmology and to philosophy all the way back um, before Socrates was this notion or the idea of the Logos. And so the Logos for Heraclitus in Ephesus, writing and interacting with Ephesians, was to talk about the Logos as the divine ordering principle. It's the, it's the, the rationality or the principle that orders, gives structure, gives semblance to the universe, to things, okay? Not radically different, but definitely nuanced and separate from or unique from the Judaic tradition of this kind of uh, the word logos. And so when you really get into it, it's not an either or, it's a complicated middle thing, but John is writing to a group of people that have an understanding of the world and of cosmology and how it began and how it came into being that's rooted in a philosophical tradition of this kind of divine ordering principle of the world. And and John takes a, a Jewish kind of tradition of the word and wisdom and he brings it in and says, I'm going to explain to you, because everything was made through Christ and ultimately for Christ, I'm going to explain to you a new and a different kind of cosmology that's true. And in the beginning was the real capital L, Logos, the word, the divine ordering principle, the one who created all things and for Uh, for who all things are created. And so we get this thing where John comes along and says to his readers, different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, he says, in the beginning was the Logos. Yeah, yeah. And the Logos was with God, okay. And the Logos was God. And then he begins to bridge out from there and, and give the Christology informing them that Jesus really is the personified, the incarnated, um, creative one. Does that make sense? There's something powerful going on here about Christ and the idea of structuring, ordering, aligning, determining, desiring, and managing the, the world and the cosmos. And it gives us, I think, a platform for understanding what happens back in Genesis when the world is created 
and if we kind of interpose this in, the world was created with capital L logos. So you understand what I mean by capital L? It's like top down, like supreme logos, capital L. Okay. And then God says to mankind, he says, I, I have given you dominion over the earth, which really is better translated stewardship, responsibility. And you're to name the animals. Is, did God run out of creativity? Could God have named the animals? Could God have taken care of the animals instead of creating or delegating a caretaker to care for creation? He could have, right? I mean, certainly could have. But God made man in his image. God created man and made him in his likeness. And this creative man has lowercase logos. We all have a sense of what it, um, of the image of God in us for ordering and structuring and creating. What happens when you move into a new house? Kip? Kip's gonna say, Kristen orders it, right? Um, when, you, when you go to a new dorm, when you, when you take on a new job, when, when you find a whole lot of time you don't know what to do with and you go into your garage, like we are wired in the image of God to give order and to give structure and to bring about uh, health, health into the things that we're caretakers over or stewards of. Does that make sense? We do it naturally. We, we feel fulfilled when we do it. And when we don't do it, we feel stressed. Just look at me right now. And you know what my house looks like and my garage and my schedule. Like we, we, when we, when we just feel out of control. Like we're not in control. Like we don't, we're not living into our calling. We're not being who we were made to be, where, where we want to be because we're somehow out of that center of gravity. The center of gravity is the image of God. It's us exercising in a healthy way. Lagos, the divine ordering principle. And so God gives us this mandate that specifies multiply and be fruitful. Um, have dominion over the garden and name the animals. He gives us this responsibility that really speaks to a theology of creativity. That being made in the image of God and the likeness of God comes with it, bears with it the fact that we are creative, structured, organizational, harmonious beings. Dorothy Sayers says this, man is never truly himself except when he is actively creating something. I uh, said it last week, but I've kind of got this phrase in my mind that I've, I've hung on to. I've even tweeted it once, I think. But it was, um, it's another thing my wife would have, where is she? She would have stopped me from saying that. Um, but when we, when we're being creative, it's like taking the image of God in us out for a walk. We're exercising the image of God in us when we're being creative and innovative and imaginative and we're able to order and structure for beauty and for harmony. So what does a theology of creativity bring about? Here's the thing. It's not the topic we normally talk about in church. In church, we normally talk about the 
the subject, parenting, okay? And then we, we try to dissect and come at that subject, say parenting, um, because it's a very relevant subject. I think this theology of creativity is rather a resource or a set of tools or an idea of how things are, are done or ought to be done when we come to subjects like parenting. See, parenting, we treat it way too statically. It's like, where's the book? What are the principles? What's the formula? Because I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I feel like I wasn't prepared for this or I'm worried about my children. So what's the formula? And then we're always playing catch up. We're always like two years behind the age where our kid is actually at and always trying to understand why they're not doing what they're supposed to do or what the book says they'll do, right? Why aren't they behaving um, predictably. Well, they're not predictive. Why? They're made in the image of God. They're creative and they're innovative. You got to get out in front of them. Outsmart the little devils and be creative and innovative. I used to tell my high school parents when I was a youth pastor, number one rule, don't believe a single thing your kid tells you. I'm, I'm dead serious. Parents think somehow it's a virtue to believe a lie. We don't hold that same um, thought with politics, right? Or our banker or the business. You know what I'm saying? Like, when is it a virtue to believe a lie? When your kid's lying, you'd be smart enough, inventive enough, innovative enough to catch them in the lie so that you can teach and educate. Because if you just believe a lie, you're perpetuating the lie, you're, you're enabling them to become a liar, and they begin to not deal with the consequences of lying. There's no parenting in that. But I had all these high school parents, kids are strung out on drugs, and they're like, no, my kid wouldn't do that. Why? Well, because he was really good in the fifth grade. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you, but your kid's not in the fifth grade anymore. You need the next Dobson book. You know, like you're, you're reading the one for like, get at, but your, your kid's actually about to, to like lose the rest of his life, his future. If you're not smart enough, creative enough, you, you tap into the logos in you enough to be bigger than your kid so that you can lead and steer your kid. It gets harder when, I'm, I'm, I gotta, I'm about to have a teenager. And I was a youth pastor, so I know what's coming, right? I know what's coming for them, but I also know what it means for me. You can't parent teenagers the way you parent non-teenagers. Teenagers at age 13 were programmed to exercise their independence. So you try and parent them like you parented them when they were little, and you end up always fighting each other and knocking heads, and you end up with rebellious spirits and things like that. You got to like lead from behind with, with your teenager. You got to say you're sorry more than you're asking them to say they're sorry. You got to be more creative with understanding what you could have done different when you're in a fight than expecting them to be big enough to understand what they could have done different. Does that make sense? You got to change the incentives and you got to, but it's like you got to be creative to parent. So parenting is a subject, it's a subject we care about. Creativity, you don't ever, I've never heard it talked about in church. 
but it's a part of what it means for us to live out wisdom, the logos, the image of God, when we come to subjects that require us to not act as if we weren't made in the image of God. When we just take inputs and, and give outputs or do things by formula, we're, we're denying or suppressing the latent potential that exists within us to be creative. Does that make sense? So that's what I mean by theology of creativity. All right, moving real fast. One, we know, that crea- uh, we know the creativity of God through creation. So we come to know the creativity of God or that God is a creative God through creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare your glory. So there's a theology of creation whereby in looking at creation, we can pull the metaphor or the analogy or, or whatever over to understand something about the creator. Okay, so creativity and creation, again, is one of the ways in which we know God. We know the creativity of God through creation, number one. Number two, our own artistry is one of the ways we relate to God. Our own artistry is one of the ways we relate to God. If we deny that, we're somehow limiting or suppressing our ability to relate to God. It's like if, if, my, if I picked up a language, a second language, and I decided I was just going to speak that second language to my dad who doesn't speak it, um, you know what I mean? There's no communication going on. Art is, is a language whereby we work out the deeper feelings, the deeper issues that we have, and are able to come into fellowship with God. Psalm 33, 2. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Even more poignant, Psalm 49, 4. Listen to this now. I will turn my ear to a proverb, and with the harp I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come and when wicked deceivers surround me? I'm going to work out my issues through my music. Any musicians in here? Why do you still play? I mean, you're not still like in lessons, are you? Right? Are you getting paid for your music? So, I mean, maybe, maybe like one of you, right? <laughs> so why do you still play? Why do you still write poetry? Why do you still paint? Why are you doing pottery late in life as a newfound career? Why are you doing these things with creativity and art? Because in that, you find your true self. In that, you find intimacy with God. In that, you're able to verbally process out out things that you wouldn't be able to do if you weren't using that means or that mechanism. All of us, even if you're not an artist, have walked into a worship service before. Worship service meaning praise music, uh, worshiping or giving glory to God through music and art, right? All of us have walked in at some point in time and, and it took you to a place that you had never been before. It put words in your mouth that you needed to be able to pray to God that had to be supplied to you. It added depth of emotion with the instrumentation to those words that if you were just standing somewhere in the middle of a 7-Eleven and praying to God, 
you wouldn't have been able to have, but those, those layers of emotion somehow got to a more true place in you. Does that make sense? Anyone had that experience? I, I long for those experiences, right? Those experiences are faith-building experiences. They chase away doubt. They, they make us better believers in God because the closer our relationship with God, the more we want to just let go of everything else and make sure we hold on to that thing. Art does that. Our own artistry is one of the ways we relate to God. One of the things, um, just side note here, we don't often talk about how we reflect with the whole idea of the image of God some of the talents of God. Have you ever thought about that? We always talk about character traits. Character traits. God is a God, and, and that's okay. God is a God of justice. God is a God of integrity. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of, of whatever, love. These character traits. When we start talking about creative potentiality, I think we tend to think of that more in terms of like gifts and talents. You know what I'm talking about? Skill. And God has skills. God has talents. God has things that he's really good at that when we are made in the image of God, we can look at and say, how does that thing that you're good at, being creative, being able to bring order into things, being able to work things out that way for your own glory, how, how is that also in me, God? Now, if you're an artist, that's a, you got to really plumb the depths of that because that's deep stuff. God has made you to be creative. And you are never more yourself and never glorifying God more than when you're exercising that creativity. But even those of us that don't have like say artistic gifts, we're still made in the image of God with the divine spark of logos, that divine ordering principle. And I think we can look at that and say, how does this, how do I have this thing that reflects somehow this, this talent of God's? I'm good at being human which means I'm also good at somehow having the image of God in me. Does that make sense? Is it so oversimple that it's now like confusing? I'll say, I'll say, I'll say again. <laughs> is any, I mean, is anyone with me? Okay. God's, God's gifted and you all are special. All right. <laughs> All right, we understand. So here's number three. So we know the creativity of God through creation, number one. Number two, we, our own artistry is one of the ways we relate to God. I'll expound on my riddle through the harp. Number three, we come to understand truth through imagination. We come to understand truth through imagination. Turn to Matthew chapter nine with me. It's kind of a familiar passage but I want to put it in the context of imagination and creativity here. Matthew chapter 9. Um, is not the right passage. 
All right, well, I'll just paraphrase for you. You guys can go to Bible Gateway when you get home and find the right passage. Unbelievable. Oh, there. Um, all right, let's just pick up the whole thing. So chapter 9, um, so the calling of Matthew. So Jesus, we'll just read from verse 9 down. As, as uh, Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax, uh, tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. So Matthew is like lawyer, if you're thinking of bad lawyers, because we have to make a distinction. There's good lawyers too, right? But the, the, the jokes of bad lawyers, you know, the, the ambulance chasers, maybe that's a better phrase, or something to that effect. That's what people would have seen Matthew as. He's a tax collector. He's actually aligned more with empire, the Romans, than he is aligned with his own ethnicity and his own people and his own place. And so he's extorting them and profiting off of them in alignment with empire. And how do you think people would feel a, a, about that? It's unbelievable stuff. And so Jesus goes to this guy. He says, hey, uh, follow me. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because that's not good Jewish behavior fellowshipping with, with bad people, right? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Another way of saying that is, I care more about love than religiosity. That's what God said in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, go do your homework better. Do your homework better. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, so how is it uh, that we and the Pharisees, so then they ask him, the Pharisees ask, so how is it that, that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Another religiosity question. We're fasting, we're reaching out to God, we're like beating ourselves and, and kind of really working hard at this relationship with God, but your, your disciples don't fast. They're eating with sinners, and they don't fast. And Jesus answered this. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will, will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So this is, this is uh, where I want to be. Verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch, when it pulls away from the garment, uh, making the tear worse. So this is already shrunk. You put a new patch on there. You, you wash it, it shrinks, and all of a sudden you got this garbled up mess. Does that make sense? There's a fabric like that when I was a kid. My mom used to always uh, try and dress me in. It was always wavy. And I don't, I don't know that I liked it. Um, but it gives me that picture of like shrinking up and creating. Not, it's not good. It's not good. Not good. Uh, verse 17, listen to this one. Same analogy, neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. Why? Fermentation, it's, it's not a supple wineskin. You put, put it in and, and it, the process is going to happen and it's not resilient and so it bursts. And so he says, if they do, they'll burst but the, and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And both are preserved. And Jesus is talking about his teaching here. Look, I've got a message here 
I'm coming and I'm bringing truth here. And you guys, it doesn't matter what I say, it's like you're just looking to pick it apart. Like you just don't even get it. Even when I'm exhibiting the very heart of God in front of you, you don't even see it. Because you have these categories that are so rigid that it allows you to screen everything out. Some of you might have grown up at a church that way and it was like, um, you could actually never get to love, but it would never happen because there was always other stuff that there was never an end to the other stuff of screening out good or bad or judging people or picking at their theology or are you a, a 4.7 point Calvinist or are you a, are you a, a true 5.1% Calvinist or you know what I mean? Like, and you, you nitpick at theology, you nitpick at all of it and, and by the time it, it's done, it's like you, you don't have any time left for love. You never get to love and then you just get out of the practice of love and then you start talking about love as this abstract con, uh, concept. And, and then you, you know what I'm saying? And you just, it doesn't become a practical reality. And Jesus is like, I, I, I can't. I'm here with my people, these sinners, drinking wine with them, loving them, listening to them, caring about their issues, showing them that even though they made a mistake about getting in with empire, that I can redeem that. I'm doing my thing, and you guys are on the outside, in the cold, rigid, and there's not a light in you at all. There's no joy in you at all, and so I can't work with you. You're not resilient enough. But these little poor fishermen that I've got, my disciples, these ones I kind of grab teenage boys for the most part that are new and they're from the country, they're like new wineskins. They're teachable. They have an imagination that allows them to get outside of the old structures and traditions. And so I'm giving them the virus. I'm giving them my message. I'm giving them the truth and they're gonna drink it up. And so here's what I'm trying to say to you. We, we have to have imagination. We have to have resiliency and be creative enough um, to sometimes grab hold of truth and be able to adapt to it. C.S. Lewis, one of the reasons I love C.S. Lewis is he was a guy that kept childlike wonder throughout his whole life. And he was always taking and revising his, his tablet of beliefs, his Christianity, so that you know at age 50 he's on version 68 of his Christianity because he's always taken his experience and what he reads and what he learns and what he gets wrong and holding it up against scripture and praying about it and always being willing to be humble and go, man, I, I sneak myself into so much of this stuff. Every time I look, I've, I've snuck myself into my religion and into my goodness and into, and, and into even love. It's really about me. And I gotta, I gotta, we, I gotta like strip that out of this thing somehow. And so he would keep revising it and revising it and revising it. And then even in his, um, his journal when his wife died, he, he took the idea of a picture and he says, you know, the picture isn't her. It's a false image in some sense. It boxes it in. It's not the true thing. And I want the true thing, not just the picture. The picture almost stops me from remembering the truth and all my memories collapse down to just one image and it becomes this false idol, he says. 
And he goes, you know what? I think maybe I do that with my neighbor too. When I put them in a box and I have a first impression about them. I mean, how many of you, if I said, talk to me about somebody that you knew your senior year of high school? You'd have a category for them, wouldn't you? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, he was trouble, you know? I mean, do you realize that he is now 41 with like five kids? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, it, he's not trouble anymore. That's your mental picture. And Lewis was saying, man, I think I do this with my neighbor. And it's not good because there's no plasticity. There's no resiliency there. There's no adaptability there. He, and he said, so I think I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. And you know what? I want Jesus, not my idea of Jesus. I want God, not my idea of God. I want to be able to keep reaching for the truth and not just find that I'm comfortable with my platitudes or my formulas so that I stop even thinking or imagining or evaluating or dreaming or reflecting or meditating. I just, I just argue this out or beat people over the head with it. And so what I'm saying here with this one is that we understand truth through imagination. It's amazing that prophetic language, apocalyptic language, educational language in scripture is always or predominantly figurative and imaginative. Why is that? Because our creativity and being made in the image of God and the exercise thereof is a part of us being able to come at truth better. If you're a teacher, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you work in the schools and you're a teacher, first, I love you. I mean, I don't know any other education or profession where you get to put so much of your time and energy into shaping people, right? I, I mean, I, I think it's just such an incredible calling but if you're doing that, you know that if it's just so static and black and white and unimaginative and unengaging, that there's not much that's going to be learned. That's why all the specialization and the killing of the humanities and the social sciences and stuff right now is, like grieves me. So I'm like, well, you don't understand. That's not how we're going to get people to compete better in science. We're just going to make a bad problem doubly worse. Because now they're going to um, be people that can't compete in sciences and they're really unimaginative and boring and not very smart on things like history or other, you know what I'm saying, or art. They're very non-talented people that don't compete. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't even know if my wife's in here. She usually sits over here. And I'm, I feel very lost and <laughs> exposed and... Uh, <laughs> That's okay. But the prophetic, apocalyptic, and educational language in Scripture is figurative for a reason. It's imaginative for a reason because we understand truth through imagination. All right, here's the, here's the big point for me that I'm trying, this is where I've been trying to get to, is that we join with God through participation. We join with God through participation. I think if there's any false dichotomy or erroneous or heretical error that's creeped up into the church, it's this. We see ourselves as inert, passive objects in the work of God. We're passive recipi uh, recipients 
instead of active participants. We're passive recipients. God, I need you to give me, I need you to save me. I need you to give me grace. Rather than active participants in what it is that God is doing or the story of salvation or the gospel as it works its way out in our life. We're static versus dynamic. Um, there's two different ways of creation, looking at creation here. I was uh, in New Orleans this week at CCDA. CCDA is the Christian Community Development Association Conference. It's a rich time, very diverse group, uh, groups from all around the country that work in impoverished areas and in the inner city. Um, but it was in New Orleans, and I had, a, I had frequent flyer miles, so I brought Tamara. So we went and found a jazz club. Now, just so you know, you don't find a good jazz club on Bourbon Street. You actually get horrified as a human being on Bourbon Street. And then you're like, um, then you leave Bourbon Street. Like, I didn't know it was that bad, right? But Frenchman Street, it's out of the French Quarter altogether, but that's where all the foodies and all the, the kind of real jazz tradition that's moved. It's like four-block area that's amazing. So we watched, this, we watched jazz that whole night. And jazz is an, is an amazing art form because it exists in dynamic improvisational tension. Does that make sense? You, you have this band that comes together and there's structure underneath it, but what makes it what it is is the ability to play off of each other and to improvise and, and it comes alive as it's being worked out. And I have a friend, a theologian uh, in, at New York Seminary that wrote a whole book relating jazz to the work of the Holy Spirit in theology. He says we need an improvisational theology, a, a situational theology, a practical theology, basically what I would call wisdom and the ability to hear from God so that we don't just have these fixed tablets of things, but that in the moment the Holy Spirit can move with us and through us or that our own rationality and creativity and imagination can look at a given situation, whether it's parenting or giving advice to a friend or finding yourself in a challenging circumstance and find an unbelievably spiritual way through that that glorifies God and refle uh, reflects your ability to navigate life as being made in the image of God, both men and women. And it's a, I think it's such a true thing that happens. It's why Jesus with his disciples didn't always give them the answers. He would tell them out to, to go do it. Like, go feed everybody. Do you ever wonder um, how, how Jesus did such a bad job with the food? He creates food for 5,000 people and he didn't get it right. He actually created food for like 5,026 people. You know, there was these leftover baskets. You know what I'm talking about? It's like that's uneconomical, you know? I want a precise miracle, Jesus, that shows me that you actually know the number of people in your audience. You just, it was a messy miracle. You just, you just created volume, not order, Jesus. Um, but I look at it from the standpoint of the disciples. It's like, you know what it would have been like to walk around with that, that food? And you're like, giving food to people? And they're like, sweet, where did this come from? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I've been getting that question all morning and I'm a little tired of answering it. Um, it just opens up more questions, you know. Uh, no, really, seriously, tell me. Well, Jesus made it. How do you do that? Well, you see, 
there's this thing called the Logos with the capital L, you know. And we have, you know, but he, he would put his disciples out there in the middle of stuff with no instruction on how to answer the questions or how to distribute the food in such a way that there's no leftovers. Like he would just push them out. You go cast out demons. Good luck with that. Let me know if it gets really hairy. Avoid New Orleans um, at night. There's like haunted tours that they sell down there on Bourbon Street. Um, but Jesus would put his disciples out there to go live it out, work it out, figure it out. Like he would just let them figure out how to participate in what he's doing. I mean, couldn't Jesus have just been like, instead of food for 5,000 people in these baskets, I'm going to create food for 5,000 people in their laps. Seems just as challenging from a miracle standpoint, like if you were to rate them on level of difficulty. I'm dead serious. Jesus involved his disciples in his ministry. They participated in it. And there's this, I think, beautiful metaphor, uh, metaphor of creativity that jazz shows us of this improv and going back and forth and working it out. There, this jazz band we saw, it's all local dudes have been, been together for a long time. They're really good. But there's this sax guy that had come down from Chicago. And he was a white dude, about 26. Um, cool looking guy, big guy, probably knew how to play the sax really well. And so they invited him up to join him, right? And the second set was like, it was all improv. And it was all just riffing, riffing off each other and stuff like that. And, and it just would go and go and go. And it was so funny because the, the dude from Chicago would always go to take a breath and the 65-year-old sax player that had grown up in New Orleans would always just jump right in. <laughs> and after about a half hour, like you could just see the frustration on this, this guy from, um, from Chicago because he was always missing his chance. Like he just didn't know how to like jump in at the right time. And the old guy, I think, was doing it on purpose, to be honest with you. I think he knew, I think he knew that if he just jumped at a couple beats, you know, like, and came in just a few measures ahead of when he was supposed to, that he'd always just be able to do his, um, his uh, sax solo and keep the, I, it was really, but I was watching this, and I'm like, there's something beautiful about the dynamic of all that's going on here. So within this, I want to give you three scriptures. This fourth point, I want to give you three scriptures. Philippians one, four through six. And all my prayers for all of you, this is how he opens the book of Philippians, Paul does. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. Your partnership in the gospel. You just weren't recipients in the gospel. You were partners. But here's the beauty. The one who began it, is going to carry it forward because the Holy Spirit is working this thing out with you involved. He goes on in Philippians 2 to say something very similar. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now so much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Figure that thing out. Use your creativity. Pass the food around. Like, get involved with it. Get your hands dirty. Learn. And then he says this, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purposes. The artwork that God is doing requires our participation. 
It's his artwork, but it requires our participation. But our participation is an active participation. We're not just recipients of grace. We're people who give grace as well. We distribute grace. So God's thing isn't just a a reverb thing he's looking for. He's looking for a multiplication effect. He's looking for this synergy with these participants in his creative work. It's an unbelievably complex and beautiful thing that's happening as we join God in participation. The second scripture, Acts 2, familiar one, verse 42. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They're living this thing out. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying all the favor of the people. Last sentence. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you see the dynamic creative work that's going on. Um, There's a distinction between two types of words of creativity here. Um, One is uh, creatio ex nihilo. Do I have to write that again? Is it going to work? Wow. Um, My writing's going to be weird now. Creatio ex, otherwise it would have been really good. (laughs) <laughs> Nihilo. Um, creation out of nothing. I mean, you're probably familiar, I mean, you might have heard that Latin expression. It's, it's the idea of the Big Bang or, um, or God's creative work, that it, was, it came out of nothing. It came out of nothing. Um, the idea here uh, with the second one is creatio uh, continuo. Ah, just pretend I know Latin. So creation, it's continuous creation. It's creation with what already exists. It's creation that, that continues to move itself forward. It's creation that utilizes and works with the different things going on. It's redemptive creation. Does that make sense? And we are called to join God in this creatio continuo, this ongoing work of creation. We participate, it, uh, participate in it, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We bring something to this relationship with God. This relationship, true relationship, is always driven more by kinship than transaction. I think theology, when we just get it so sterile, has been more informed by medieval economic thinking, that that our idea of salvation has been more influenced by medieval economic thinking about a transaction of grace than realizing somehow that this is a relationship of renewal and forgiveness and rebirth into this harmonious kind of interchange. It's not static. It's not, it's dynamic. Okay, we participate in this. Um, It's active. The third verse here. We're not just beneficiaries of grace, we're agents of grace. The third one here, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Dang, um, 
I was in a room this week with John Perkins. John Perkins is in his 80s, is a civil rights icon, lost his brother to a sheriff back in, in Mississippi growing up. And, and he's had this unbelievable legacy. But he also was a third grade dropout. He's got a bunch of honorary doctorates and he's a really smart guy, but he was a third grade dropout. And, and when, when he talks sometimes, he has this way of, of talking. I mean, I, I was listening and I was like, I, I don't know that I could ever pull that off, what he just did right there. But it's this group of leaders in this room, about 15, and there's this one head of a denomination that used to be in the military. And John Perkins starts talking about this row that they'd had a number of years back because CCDA had had a speaker, a guy I know who's an author, who's a pacifist, anti-war activist. And this guy that's the head of the denomination had retired as a colonel in, in one of the armed services. And so he really took offense to what was being said um, by this other guy. And, and John starts relaying the story and he just said, I, you know, so he talks slowly with this kind of um, resonance in his voice. He talks with a cadence. So John Perkins is, leans forward in his mid-80s. He's like, I, I've got enough love, I think. I think I got enough, enough love in my heart for you. And then I can also love my brother Shane, even though you guys disagree. I mean, I've got enough love in my heart for that. You know, I think, I think that's what we're called to, that we would somehow love each other. I mean, we'd, we'd love one another and be one. And isn't that what Jesus meant when he said that we were supposed to love each other and be one? I mean, I don't know. I think it's a command, but I don't know. Do you guys think it's a command? It sounds an awful lot like a command to me. Would, do you, how do you guys read that? Do you read it as a command? I'm not very smart. I'm a, I dropped out in the third grade. You guys got to tell me, does that, does that sound like a command to you? And everyone's just like, yeah, I, it kind of sounds like maybe we should, I don't love each other a little better. Maybe, and, and he just says, I just, I just think we need to have more love for people. It doesn't matter whether they disagree with each other or not or whatever color they are or, or what they think about war. He goes, I don't want more war. He goes, but that's okay. I, that's just me. But I love you, and, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you. And, and everyone else is like, please love me too. I'm over here. Love me too, you know, like. And, uh, and so he, he, this is this moment. If you've been around John Perkins, he gets going, and you just let him go, and there's these, he has these moments, gospel moments, you know. And I think I walked away from that going, you know what? We're, we don't love each other well enough because we don't, imagine it enough. We all know it. I mean, everyone in the room was like, yeah, John, and it's a command. You're, yeah, you're reading it right. It's in scripture. Jesus says it. We all, yeah, we get it. Um, but you're really making us feel guilty about it because <laughs> we're not really doing it. And I think the reason we don't do it is we, we, we're not dreaming of it like John Perkins dreams of it. We're not imagining the possibility that we can create it and be a part of ordering that structure and working it out and bringing it about that we're made in the image of God and that God says, I want it. I'm working it out. I'm redeeming things. I've got grace for it. Stop seeing people the way they are. See them the way they can be and create that. Imagine that. Dream it for them. Dream it for your community. 
John Wember, someone was telling me recently when he was a new Christian, John Wember started the Vineyard denomination. And whatever you think about the, that denomination, this story was riveting to me. He was in this kind of new believers Bible study for about 12 weeks. And after a number of weeks, he finally just raises his hand and asks the teacher, hey, when do we get to do the stuff? Teacher's like, what do you mean? What stuff? I mean, when do we get to do the stuff? Teacher's like, what stuff? Well, we're talking about all these wonderful things to believe, and it's great, and I, I, re I really appreciate it, but all that, you know, binding up the broken and, and setting the captives free and healing people, when do we get to do the stuff that, that it says we're going to do? And I mean, that's imagination. That's spiritual, practical, divine theology that's saying, we're a part of this creative work. We get to participate somehow in this, right? And so I, I, I see the disciples and Paul and they go and um, in Thessalonica, there's this fascinating phrase where, where the, the people come to the city and they go, these men are upsetting the world. They're, up, they're literally turning the world upside down. They're upsetting the world. And I'm like, I wanna, I wanna not stop dreaming, when I started the church, it was all dreaming, you know? I believed we could change the world. I still believe that. But I want to renew that. I want to feel like I can upset at least this city. Or that we can somehow conspire, create, dream big enough to upset this city. I mean, the extent of upset for me sometimes, you know, I make people upset. Um, I want to upset the world. I want to upset this town. I want to focus more on making art than, than the scourge of my generation, which is always thinking that we're the finished art piece and it's all about self-branding and image and clothes and looks and hair and treating ourselves as if we're some sort of little idol that we have to create and make cool enough that it'll be the center of other people's worlds. I'm so over that. Like, I don't want my daughters growing up and getting eating disorders and being fake and breaking fellowship with people that could have been good friends because somehow there's this selfish, like, impulse to be so individualistic and so about appearance that it just shreds God's creation. I want to make art. I don't want to think of myself as the as being the art. Let's dream bigger. Let's imagine the possibilities. I'm gonna